Yeah, and then um, Deep MRI is, uh, is basically the main project that we're working on now, that we spend most time on. And we just presented it at uh, the Vision Sciences Society, at the annual meeting of the Vision Science Society, VSS. And uh, I felt um, it was received very well, and people liked it, liked the overall idea, and we ourselves liked the idea a lot. And I personally think this is actually a really important topic, because it's basically a new eye-tracking framework, it's also why we spell it deep uh, MRI as uh, E Y E. Um, so uh, for the listeners, uh, Benjamin just asked me to spell it. <laughs> just yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. I feel like so that was half of the attention on Twitter. It was <laughs> yeah. just the name. <laughs> the name, yeah. Like I mean, seriously, I think the the name and overall the the package as a whole, of course, um, helps to get the message across, right? If let's say. Uh, I don't yeah, know if, if if the name is not catchy or so, then people it it doesn't get the okay, it doesn't get the attention that I think it deserves. Yeah, if you so, have some weird acronym that's hard to remember. I mean. Exactly, people just forget about it. Yeah, so I think we're lucky that we actually found one that seems to be catchy. Yeah, but anyway, it's not the it's not important in a way. At the end of the day, what's important is that um, it's an eye tracking framework for fMRI experiments that allows you to do eye tracking actually without camera. And even in the data that already exists, so you can actually go back in the data that you acquired, let's say a year ago, and actually reconstruct viewing behavior from these data, and you can reanalyze those. And I think this is really important because for ma many reasons. One is, of course, you get an additional behavioral readout for your experiment, uh, frankly, uh, that's really cool. The other one is if, let's say, you have two conditions that you want to compare and the viewing behavior differs between these, con these two conditions, then uh, also the difference in brain activity is really hard to interpret but because maybe it's because i don't know let's say you have a memory paradigm maybe the activity you see in the brain is related to memory encoding or so or, or it's actually just the difference in viewing behavior so just to interpret to tease apart these different options it's just important to do eye tracking and then another one is uh, uh, and there's also a couple of uh, actually scanning artifacts associated with uh, eye movements um and then, of course, the mo most important one is that a lot of people are simply interested in studying viewing behavior with fMRI um, and ocular motor systems. And uh, you can use it to build better task-based models, for example. And again, this is uh, working in existing data, so that's that's the cool thing here. So it, um, in short, it's a convolutional neural network, or it's the whole framework is centered on a convolutional neural network that takes the voxels of the eyeballs as a basically like a classical regions of interest uh, analysis and uses these voxels to classify gaze position and then in addition to gaze position it gives you a predicted error score telling you um, yeah, how certain you can be that the, that the decoded gaze position is correct so this is really important if you go back to existing data you can now reconstruct viewing behavior but you also get a sense of how reliable this decoding is because let's say if you have a free movie watching data set and you don't actually have eye tracking you don't have any test labels you don't know what the ground truth gaze position is the user kind of probably wants some measure of certainty for this decoding before analyzing the actual fmri data with it and uh, yeah both of this you actually get from this network so you can let's say um, you can download a resting state data set uh, i don't know a thousand people um, and 
reconstruct viewing behavior from these data, filter out the participants or samples that did not work for, for which the decoding did not work well, and then analyze the rest, uh, maybe accounting for viewing or for eye movement um, artifacts and eye movement related activity in the brain, and then just clean up your data or actually analyze it, analyze it in some other meaningful way if you want. Yeah, I mean, it would be interesting for like, I mean, these like, for example, the resting state networks, or is that the same as the default network? No, that's something else, right? Or is it? I mean, you, you see the default mode network in uh, during resting state. Okay, uh, right, yeah. Often, yeah. I mean, so like, like it would be interesting there just to see when people like with their eyes closed, just, or do they have their eyes closed? Anyway, just to analyze like mm -hmm. how their eyes move. But yeah, I mean, that's also actually interesting in resting state that I think the uh, most experiments or a lot of experiments use a fixation cross. So people actually have their eyes open. Uh, but a, a, a ton of other experiments just have the eyes closed. And there are a couple of studies showing that the resting state networks you uncover in these two different types of rest, if you want, are completely different. Or <laughs> at least they're not exactly the same, at least. Yeah. So that's which also. Which makes sense. Which <laughs> makes sense, exactly. Eyes open versus eyes closed. It is a different task. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but yeah that's also a cool thing about DMRI is that it works when while the eyes are closed, you can actually do eye tracking um, while the eyes are closed, for example, during REM sleep, which just can opens up also. Can people sleep in the scanner? I think they, uh, I mean, uh, I don't know. I, I've never scanned uh, people uh, sleeping or slept in the scanner. Um, I think it's doable. So at, at least there are papers even showing that during resting state, for example, people, f I think, I don't know, 30% of the people or so fall asleep within the first couple of minutes of the resting state, or you find at least evidence for sleep uh, within the first three minutes or so in a large part of the people. Yeah, yeah, no, actually, if I remember, like people saying that a lot of people, not a lot, but like they will have participants who will just fall asleep. I guess, I mean, you're lying down, it's kind of warm uh, and mm -hmm. it's a kind of like monotonous noise often in the background. Yeah, and you are, you are in this capsule kind of protected environment, no, nothing, especially during resting state, nothing really disturbs you you're just in this i don't know sound box mm -hmm. you can't do much you can't move either yeah. so one question i had so earlier you mentioned that um it doesn't work or you can you can take out people for whom it didn't work mm -hmm. uh, or for whom it doesn't work as well so do you know what that depends on yeah i mean what we do is uh, we take the data we pre-process it minimally actually do like realignment so we correct head motion and so on mm -hmm. these data and um, yeah really minimal pre-processing and then we co-register everything to our own template space which is an average brain for which we know of, of like i think 27 people of which we know where they are looking so they're fixating the screen center so we know if the eyeballs look like this they fixate at the screen center mm -hmm. and we co-register everything using non-linear transformations to this template space and it's it's a little bit of a complex registration procedure but at the end of the day it might not work exactly equally well for everybody right so in some people the mask might be a little bit shifted or um, they just buy and from because of anatomical reasons they might have different distortions in the eyeballs or so um, some people just didn't do the task well or so right so um, okay yeah I don't know some if let's say if you have a viewing task some people might just close their eyes <laughs> actually some literally some some people might just yeah, literally yeah. fall asleep in the scanner and you kind of you could in theory catch those people in, in your data set you could in theory account for them somehow using eye tracking yeah it seems i mean it's almost like i remember when you presented um 
I mean, so you, when you were at our institute in Hamburg, you presented, I guess, like most of your PhD and the deep MRI was just five to 10 minutes or something at the end, I think. Yeah. Um, it did sound like the thing which is like too good to be true almost. Like where you have like, uh, you know, you start with one thing like, hey, we can just use, um, you know, you can you can use MRI to get uh, eye tracking. It's like, oh, that's really cool. And it's like, even if the eyes are closed, okay, well, perfect sense. Like you don't need <laughs> eyes open. And it's like, well, even for old data sets, like any MRI data set you have, and then mm. it just, like you just stacked it more and more. It's like, wow, this. Yeah. <laughs> No, that's why we are so excited. And it, it, we also explore um, scanning parameters. So we scanned a subset of people with eye tracking, with camera-based eye tracking and nine different imaging protocols. So uh, it's a three by three design for repetition time. So basically temporal resolution of your, uh, of your fMRI scanning sequence and uh, voxel size, so spatial resolution. And uh, yeah, we have voxels from 1.5 millimeter to 2.5 millimeter and uh, repetition times between 800 milliseconds and 2.5 seconds, right? So we have overall, actually, uh, the entire data set consists of 267, I believe, people. Or 270, whatever. So the um, training data set for the... the tra exactly, it's, cross it's a cross-validated uh, training test data set. So uh, all the data goes into training and into test in a cross-validated fashion, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, Exactly, in a subset of people, we scan with nine different imaging protocols, but overall we have 14. And for all of those 14 that we have, it works really well. So even for large voxels of 2.5 millimeters or for very long TRs of 2.5 seconds, right, or repetition times, it still works quite amazingly, actually. Um, I think one, one thing that um, should also emphasize is that in order for it to work really well, you kind of need training data for your own. I mean, if the best would be that you, let's say if you have a, a data set of 30 people lying around and you want to reanalyze these data, it might make sense to scan another five to 10 people with an eye tracker calibration script where you know, well, people fixate at certain locations. You just present a fixation cross on the screen, and use these data to train the network using the same scanning sequence. So the same distortions, same, kind of slice, similar slice package and so on. Uh, and then decode from the data that already exists. So you can't just, you in theory, you could out of the box take our model weights that we will also share with the code and decode from your data set, but that's not gonna be, it's not gonna work extraordinarily well. Um, right, it's really right. best so if you have your own training data. Okay, so like the best, so it's, how should we say, I mean, like one thing that sounded um, to me super cool about this is that, so I've never used eye tracking um, in or outside an MRI scanner, but a lot of people here do. And you fairly regularly, we see emails of people saying eye track is broken again or something because they seem yeah. to be, or it's, they couldn't calibrate it properly or whatever. It seems to be a, um, at least the one we're using here, a tool that uh, is not as reliable as other tools we're using, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, and it seemed to me like super cool that you could just like get rid of the tool almost basically, but it's but you're suggesting basically it would be still be good to, yeah, just do it with a few people and then you don't, but you don't need to do it for all at least. Yeah, you don't really need eye tracking for that. You can scan people without an actual eye tracker, but just have fixation crosses on the screen. Oh, so you I still see, don't I need see. the camera. Okay. Yeah, so you right. can save these like $50,000 on the camera for the camera. <laughs> And just right. basically scan a five-minute uh, calibration script for every person. So you, oh, okay, this is good. actually yeah. how it is. Yeah. yeah. 
So you don't oh, well really that's then not much of a problem then, yeah. I mean Exactly. So you scan like a five minute scan uh, for for calibration, that's it. Um but of course if you already have an eye tracker, you might just as well use it. But then even then, in my experience, the calibration sometimes doesn't work for people. Eye tracking in the scanner is often really noisy, it depends a bit on the setup. But then for for a lot of people you will actually in the end up uh, at the end end up losing data, eye tracking data. And for those people, in theory, you could also, even if you have an eye tracker, you could then use DeepMRI to recover viewing behavior in those participants. Or let's say um, your eye tracker broke during the scan and you have two runs with eye tracking and one run without, you can just use it for the other run, whatever. But overall, I think the big, and the, um, the big potential is really to um, have your own, if you have your own training data, in a few participants and just decode from everybody else and that works for existing data but also of course for future experiments let's say you plan a new scanning study you just add this five minute snippet of calibration script to your scanning session for every single participant and you will have plenty of training data for your entire uh, for your entire experiment That's good. so how accurate is it then like if you i'm assuming you're comparing it to standard um eye tracking or yeah yeah, it's really accurate. Uh, so it, um, we have a couple of measures, of course. So model performance, if you want, you can measure in, a, in multiple ways. I think the not the best, but one way of doing it is Pearson correlation between real and predicted gaze path. And uh, the median Pearson correlation between those two, real and predicted, is across all these people that we have, across all data sets, is at 0.9 Pearson correlation. So that's okay. extraordinary, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, but and even if you so Pearson correlation doesn't take into account the scaling of the data, so you could have basically covariating signals, but let's say the scaling is completely off. Um, I mean covariating gaze positions. Let's say one is at ten degree visual angle, the other one is at one degree visual angle. So in theory, you have a, Euc a large Euclidean error, but the fluctuations are the same. So you will get up, you will end up having a good, a high Pearson correlation. But even if you take these scaling issues into account, you take the Euclidean error and so on, you get a really, really good model performance. So I think for many fMRI settings, um, uh, uh, yeah, I wouldn't feel comfortable putting like a number now on it because we're still working on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, it's definitely very accurate for, for the large majority of fMRI studies, it will be enough. So it will and definitely get a different, uh, like uh, where people are looking uh, plus minus maybe two degree visual angle, one degree visual angle. It depends a little bit on your training data and so on. But I mean, the predicted error score will tell you what the predicted accuracy is um, given your data, your training data. So that's also pretty cool. Yeah. So just to go um, um, to ask a more question about the like the precision or res the resolution of the thing. So I'm just curious. You mentioned earlier that this could be cool if you have like a um, what's it called, like natural vision, not natural vision, but like, let's say you're watching a film or something, right? Mm -hmm. um, like, let's say you you want, I don't know, you're watching, let, you're letting people watch some movie and with people's faces or whatever, like, I'm just curious, I'm wondering, like, would you be able to tell, like, whether people are looking at people's eyes or, I mean, it probably depends, like, obviously how big the thing is on the screen, but... Um, Yes, I, I think so. You you will be able to do that. You will be able to, during the movie, tell where people are looking. 
and we we also compare that actually during movie in a in a different project i think that's also something that um i presented in hamburg when i visited you guys um it was a, a study on on visual grid cell like activity in the human adrenal cortex and how it progresses or we how it develops uh, um, mm -hmm. in yeah. development over also over age um and there we also decode basically eye movements from the fMRI data uh, and compare it also directly to camera-based eye tracking during free movie watching and also there it's really a great match so you will if you, even if you overlay those two real eye tracking and deep MRI onto the movie you will get a really nice result yeah that's really cool yeah I almost wish I was doing vision research now <laughs> that I could use it yeah. <laughs> for the stuff yeah, I'm using. I don't think it's going to be much, much use anytime soon, but yeah, I, I so. agree. Yeah. Um, there's so much to do with it, I think. Uh, however, I want to emphasize that this is not only a tool for vision researchers, right? This is obviously cool for, for people interested in vision, but the whole viewing behavior, also the viewing behavior confound issue is, is present in a large part of cognitive neuroimaging. I would say, uh, it's not only, it's not limited to vision and i personally in my own research i'm interested actually in yeah the interface between perception and memory in the human brain so, or how you derive uh like a, a map-like representation of the environment from your visual input so i'm really working on this interface between more higher level um, your yeah, memory processes and really low level vision let's say in v1 how motion is processed and also how this in turn affects how you remember things and where you remember things and so on so for me, this is really a, a great tool because you can, um, not only from the vision perspective, but, but because I'm interested in eye movements and gaze behavior, in, let's say, uh, and signals in the hippocampus, which is not typically associated with viewing behavior, or at least currently it's not. So it, it, do you almost think that this, I mean, you mentioned like um, eye movement artifacts, that kind of thing. So do you think this, it would make sense to make deep MRI a standard part of a pre-processing pipeline to say like okay for every trial like take out the eye the, the, the neural activity related to eye movements yeah or, or account for it uh, so account for it or study it right you can um yeah for sure i think it i mean this is a this is a big question of course uh, or uh, that would change things quite drastically it would basically what you're suggesting is adding a basically a seventh realignment parameter or so like a seventh uh, nuisance regressor to the realignment real parameters i think that's definitely possible with deep mri and we we discussed that too at the end of the day of course that depends on the user and what they want but yeah that's that's definitely possible yeah have you tr found anything where you i don't know in either your like public data sets or your own stuff where you i don't know found that like part of your results were explained by eye movement rather than some experimental thing you thought it was related to uh so in my own research i'm i'm doing eye tracking basically always uh, right okay, okay yeah okay <laughs> that's a vaguely stupid question but but, uh, but um but you know course, what i mean like is there like have you tried that or yeah we did yeah so we didn't try to explain like published results and try <laughs> so, to yeah, I mean... find like confounds and other people's stuff that's not what that's also not the point absolutely not. no of course of course but it would but, it would just show like how important it is that's what I yeah mean. exactly but th i think that we do we, so we take the predicted the actually camera-based eye tracking and the predicted eye tracking data so deep mri derived eye tracking data and just regress it against brain activity you know just whole brain fashion just see 
where in the brain does viewing behavior predict any activity? And we use um, data from Russell Epstein and, and, and Joshua Julian so that they scan people while they perform the visual search task. So very classical uh, search for the L among the T or like a distractor uh, set um, task. Yeah, and we um, use eye tracking and deep MRI and request it against brain activity. And we see this, this, this gigantic brain network that is actually explained by the viewing behavior, just by basically how far the eyes moved during a TR. Um, it's amazing. You see, of course, V1, you see parietal and frontal eye field regions, so this attention network. Um, you see um, human motion process uh, uh, complex, but you also see retrosplenial cortex, medial parietal lobe. You also see hippocampus. You see ventral prefrontal cortex. Um, many regions that are not typically associated with ocular motor function. So um, that's exactly, yeah, I think that's what makes it so important. You, be, I think this, this set of analyses, it's also on the poster that we presented at VSS, really demonstrates that it is important to do eye tracking if you want to study and account or account for these effects. Um, and also that DBMRI can be used to do so. Yeah, yeah, it is really cool. Like, I'm just thinking about like my own stuff, like you, I mean, I'm not doing anything that's, yeah, as I said, like directly related to vision and it's like the, what people see is fairly boring. Often mm -hmm. it's just like a few numbers on the screen or something, but you could at least, um, then it seems like look by people's attention is what they're, what are they really focusing on? Um, well, I guess at least using eye gaze as a proxy for attention. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah, it really it sounds really cool. Yeah, or 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 if they are awake, <laughs> if they are doing <laughs> yeah, the task. or just check for that. <laughs> or just like randomly <laughs> pressing something while sleeping. <laughs> exactly. Oh God. Yeah. No, yeah, exactly. I think I think there are so many data sets and applications for it. It's we are excited about it, and we're glad that at, at least at VSS people were excited about it as well. Yeah. And so you're using your like remaining time and time right now to just to get that as far as you can. Or? Yeah, DBMRI and um, exactly this other project I explained earlier uh, with Ignacio Polti. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I'm also planning just new stuff, of course, also for my future lab, but also uh, with Christian Dollar, uh, with whom I'm currently a postdoc with. Um, I'm also planning another study, actually, another scanning study. Ah, okay. Yeah. Also, so, so it's basically in a conceptual state at the moment, but still, it's it's fun to play around with these ideas. Maybe write some, um, like toolbox scripts and so on. I'm also trying to transition to Python. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. How's that going? Uh, that's good, actually. Yeah. I mean, I'm so far I use MATLAB, uh, and it's of course the commands are different, and some of the concepts are a little bit different how you use it. But I mean, if you know how to program in one language, it definitely it, it, it speeds up how you learn the other one. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, yeah, we also, well, we wanted to kind of transition to Python a while ago, but mm -hmm. haven't. <laughs> one of those things I think a lot of people want to do at some point, but then it's always kind of, you know, it just slows everything down for a while because yeah. you have to like learn all the new functions. and. Yeah, exactly. That's the big problem, stuff. actually, because you always are in a way in a hurry. <laughs> you also always want to get stuff done and it's always easier in the language that you already speak. <laughs> <laughs> or, yeah, or program yeah. in right and then you even if you try to do it in python and but you're really comfortable in matlab at some point when things are getting a bit tight or the deadline is coming out then you switch back to the <laughs> platform that you know best and that's that's the problem actually i have yeah, the same yeah. i definitely have the same issue so if things need to go fast 
I then switch back to MATLAB, and then I spend way too much time in MATLAB again. Which what is the reason for you for wanting to switch to Python? Is it like yeah? I think it's the future, right? Uh, MATLAB. Fewer and fewer people are using MATLAB. Um, this entire deep learning community is centered on Python. Uh, and as also for me, I mean, looking forward, in a few years from now, I feel like if you're if you're not speaking any Python, then I feel like a dinosaur somehow. <laughs> I think it's what the future will hold, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like one thing that just annoys me about MATLAB is the license thing. Like in theory, it's very mm. straightforward, but it's happened to me a few times where like, I don't know, you didn't have access to some toolbox somewhere or something. And then, yeah. so yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I agree. I think it's... It's open access. Exactly. This is, this is the main reason. And this is also the main reason why people use it that much, right? And this is amazing. It's, it's a great reason. <laughs> Yeah, I really like. Uh, yeah, I just I really like the idea behind it. Just like everyone, anywhere in the world can just, you know, you have open code, open open data, exactly. and then yeah. anyone, like I don't know, some smart ten year old somewhere with an internet connection can theory download your data set and <laughs> analyze it in Python if he wants to. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, I like that too. And then find errors that you didn't find or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that's really important. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was wondering, um, so one thing, um, so one thing that uh, Christoph, my supervisor once mentioned that he found that like one thing he found a bit tricky was that you often have this carryover phase in a new position where you're doing lots of old projects. Mm -hmm. And that I think for him in particular, he has like, I think now he has like still like three, four things or something. He basically wants to finish all the time, but you know, it's difficult to win. You have three PhD students uh, <laughs> at your feet. Um, it could be, you know, you have other stuff to do. So is, I was curious, like, is in your new position, whenever it will start, um, mm -hmm. is that closely related to what you're doing now? Or is that kind of a bit of a step? Um, I mean, it, it sounds like it would be pretty similar. Yeah, maybe just a short recap of what I've been working on. Um, yeah. I started basically in a in a vision lab and uh, in a neuroimaging lab with Andreas Bartels and worked on how visual cortices integrate visual and motor information, eye movement information in a visual motion task. So I, w I was wondering um, how the visual system stabilizes perception during self motion. That's basically how I entered this entire neuroimaging field. And back then I remembered or I, re I remember thinking that um, knowing how the visual system might be able to stabilize that, stabilize perception, I felt like I'm really understanding a piece of the puzzle how how we just uh, experience, uh, of our entire visual experience, how we experience the world and so on. But then in the course of that study, I read a lot about um, place cells, grid cells, head direction cells, so things that are cells that you would find in um, the hippocampal formation, and medial temporal lobe in humans. And they, I always felt they are really related to what I was working on because they basically derive a stable representation of the world from these visual inputs that I've been working on. But at the same time, most of these data were uh, acquired in rodents, navigating, navigating in boxes, and it was um, electrophysiological recordings. And I was working on visual motion and fMRI. And at the same time, I've, uh, simultaneously, I felt somehow related to uh, this work, but at the same time, very distant. 
right? Yeah. Also methodologically. And that changed when I read a paper by Beth Buffalo from Seattle, who recorded in the interrhinal cortex of monkeys. And they showed that these grid cells, and just uh, really, uh, I'll come back to what grid cells actually are, um, but they recorded grid cells in, in a monkey just looking at images. So suddenly these these coding principles in the in the hippocampal formation were just m much closer to what I was working on, which is they played out in visual space, which which is what I felt comfortable working with. And then another paper by my current PI, Christian, uh, Christian Döller, who showed that these grid cell-like signals, in you can pick them up in fMRI while people navigate in virtual environments, or at least uh, something that we think is a proxy of grid cell activity. And these two papers combined really um, sealed the deal for me. And I noticed, wow, I can actually work on, with the tools I already have, with the skills I already have, I can actually work on this topic as well and have a more, a bigger perspective on how visual cortex and these hippocampal cortices somehow in, uh, how they, yeah, how they interface. Um, so we ran a study with Christian and then also a couple of follow-up uh, studies. But oh, and this is the core of my PhD, if you want, along with the paper that came out two weeks ago in, in Nature Communications, where we show head direction modulation in fMRI as well, uh, using an encoding model. And overall, my PhD, I felt, was really focused on um, this forward sweep of information from visual cortex to the hippocampus, how you, how you derive a, a stable representation. But now looking forward into my postdoc, um, I feel I actually want to go the other route. I want to know what these, what these higher order visual spatial coding principles actually allow you to do. And I think um, this is there's two things. One is it, it they help to integrate visual experiences into memory and retrieve them when you need them. And they allow you to plan your behavior in space. And in particular, in a, in a text review published in 2018 with Josh Julian, I proposed that the human, also the human hippocampal formation um, represents this coordinate system of visual space that allows you, uh, that allows you to do these things. Um, memory recall and formation and planning of viewing behavior in this case. And this is what I'm gonna study in my postdoc as well. So maybe could you briefly describe your Nature Neuroscience paper? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the in, in the entire paper builds on the idea that there are grid cells in the brain and they were discovered in rodents by the Moser lab, who is basically the the core of the institute I'm working uh, at now, at the, at the Kaft Institute for, for Systems Neuroscience in Trondheim, Norway. And they discovered these cells that represent the environment uh, in a basically in, with a grid grid-like code. So they f these cells, if you record the activity of a single cell, it would fire at distinct locations in the different locations in the room while the r rodent is running around. And these locations are not just randomly distributed; they actually tile up the environment in a hexagonal grid-like fashion. So it's it's amazing for me. This is this is definitely among the most beautiful discoveries in um, in neuroscience, really. I mean, this, the pattern is absolutely striking. And I was just hooked by it when, when seeing this. I thought, why is that? This is insane. Yeah. Right? And I think a lot of people felt that way when they saw these grid cells. And also the discovery was um, uh, was rewarded with a Nobel Prize together with John O'Keefe, who 
discovered a related cell type called the place cell, which fires only at one location in the room. And uh, those cells can be found in the adjacent hippocampus. But I was focusing on these grid cells. And I tried to find evidence for these grid cells that, that also Beth Buffalo found in monkeys as a function of where, where people are, uh, where, where the, the non-human primate, the macaque, was looking on the screen. They found that a similar grid-like pattern emerged uh, in this viewing task. And I was wondering, can we find evidence for these visual grid cell-like uh, codes also in the human entorhinal cortex? So to study that, I went back to what I knew already from Andreas Bartels' lab, which is this visual tracking task. So back then I, I used a, a smooth pursuit task where people uh, fixate at a fixation target that's just smoothly moving across uh, the screen. Yeah, so in my case, um, it was always a very, a very clear predefined trajectory that allowed you to sample all directions equally in a, uh, in a um, yeah, with like constant speed and all, all these uh, factors matched. But like the participants didn't know where, when it was going to change or anything like that. Or Exa uh, well, I mean, it's, I think it, after a while it does become a little bit predictable, I guess. Um, but they, the, the actual task they performed was memorizing locations on the screen. So they, they fixated with their eyes, this moving fixation targets, but the actual task that we got a behavioral readout from was, uh, memorizing locations on the screen that just popped up some, there was like targets popping up on the screen and they would memorize the location of these targets on the screen and report them in the course of several trials. So they basically formed during this smooth pursuit task, they formed a spatial memory representation of the visual field and where these locations are. So that, that was the task. And then we analyzed the entorhinal fMRI signal as a function of eye movement direction. And now you would think, why would you, I, I just told you that grid cells encode the location of the animal in space. Why are we now looking at direction of eye movements? It's quite a stretch, right? So for that, you need to understand that this grid like or this grid pattern that, that these cells express is uh, built off um, built up from hexagonal patches and if you rotate this entire pattern this firing rate map if you want if you rotate it it would look very similar every 60 degrees of rotation so it's modulated by 60 degree or uh, six-fold rotationally symmetric and the other thing is that if you walk um, on the main axis of this grid you would cross over more firing fields than if you walk off or orthogonal of these axes to these axes. So overall, the prediction was that if there are a lot of grid cells in the brain in, in these fMRI voxels, then you should see a six-fold rotationally symmetric signal as a function of movement direction as well, because the location signal, for various reasons that are too complex here now, but the the positional signal uh, we didn't expect to see in the fMRI signal, but the directional signal should come out. And that's what we looked for. So we looked specifically for the six-fold uh, rotational symmetry in eye movement direction. And that's exactly what we observed uh, in, the, in this task, in this viewing task. So there was no, I mean, think about it. In, in rodents, these cells were discovered while um, the rodent was running around in a box. And now we can measure these things in fMRI while people look at the screen. So that's pretty, I, I thought this was pretty cool. And uh, most beautifully, it was also published back to back with a completely independent paper from a from a different group, from Russell Epstein's group and led by uh, Josh Julian, who 
later became a postdoc in our group and we also collaborated on, on various projects so that was also really cool but these two projects were completely independent and they made exactly the same observations so giving you a lot of confidence also putting it out that was for me also just a beautiful feeling i mean in the beginning of course i think josh and i both were a little bit like holy shit somebody is doing the same thing <laughs> as me it's just like it is for a young phd student knowing yeah, i mean yeah. You get a heart attack when you know that somebody else is, is doing remotely the same <laughs> as you. <laughs> some but other, this some is other my person. Brilliant idea. Uh, uh, no, no, no. But I mean, this is that might be your brilliant career, right? <laughs> that, uh, yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, who knows? Uh, anyway, or just I mean, you spend so much thought and so much effort into a project, especially in the beginning. It takes you so much dedication to get a project going and finishing it. Then of course you get a heart attack if anybody remotely looks looks at an at the same FRI machine as you. Then you think like, oh, holy cow, they're doing the same. Yeah. So, so in the beginning, it was find out that they were doing the same thing. Was it just when you submitted it to the journal, or was it before? Uh, no, we we found out before actually at a conference. Yeah, at SFN. Uh, okay. So did you like coordinate this and say let's submit it together, or was it? I'm always curious, like because there's been a few papers I've seen recently. Uh, like the development of the um and trying to like the the mm -hmm. mm -hmm. cell and play cell development that that was also back-to-back -back publication by i think john o'keefe's group and the Moses group mm -hmm. and i always wonder like whether that's like partly intentional or just complete coincidence i mean much of this is probably um agreed upon beforehand and i think i'm actually a big fan of that just from the get-go speak as transparently as possible about what you're doing i think nobody tries to step on your feet or at least very few people really try to screw you over or then um, I think most people, if you are transparent, will also be transparent. Yeah, yeah. And in case of uh, uh, Russ and, and, and Josh, we just talked at the conference the first time actually at SFN. And then um, back then they were really far ahead of us, I think, in this project and they couldn't wait for us basically. But then during the submission process, so they submitted and um, the paper was sent to us for review. So we okay. were invited to review it. Yeah, yeah. Or Christian was invited to review it. But then we said, we, we cannot possibly review this paper. <laughs> we are obviously not um, naive or, um, yeah, we have a conflict, have of, a interest. conflict of interest. Yeah. Exactly. So we responded to the editor. We are really sorry. This is, this looks like great work, but we cannot review this. But we have, we have very similar results that we also would like to submit very soon. So is it okay if we submit? And then he invited us to submit it as well. And then during the review process, these papers actually synced up and oh, came out wow. together. Okay. Yeah. So uh, that, yeah, it worked out beautifully in the end. But I mean, in the beginning, of course, everybody, uh, I think, yeah, it was just a lack of communication. It was not really miscommunication or so, or uh, nobody tried to screw anybody over, but it was just a, a lack of communication in the beginning between the two of us, both groups. And um, yeah, in the end it worked out and this was the most beautiful thing of all, <laughs> I think for me. Yeah, it's, I mean, it must, uh, like from the outside, it seems like it must be amazing to have like a, a really cool paper immediately, uh, independently kind of, uh, um, what's the word? replicated or confirmed yeah replicated yeah. each other basically yeah exactly exactly yeah and it, and uh, i mean the signal itself the six-fold rotational uh, rotational symmetry was then also replicated by tobias staudigl who is now a pi in, in munich in meg actually MEG. so he's so he also looked at uh, in a very similar viewing tasks he looked at the cortex 
yeah i mean it's source reconstructed to the medial temporal lobe you cannot really say it's like this is entrine cortex yeah, exactly. but uh, it's the medial okay. temporal lobe it's it, it really the signal is coming from where you would expect it to come from mm -hmm. also in meg mm, okay yeah, that's cool yeah. yeah and now we also replicated it in uh, yet another data set that i presented in hamburg in uh, this, which uh, in, in this aging or in this uh, developmental data set yeah can we talk about that briefly yeah sure yeah uh, so we downloaded a a publicly available data set of people between five and uh, i think 20 years old 21 overall i think for the oldest uh, group of people we don't have too many subjects we kind of cut off the oldest group um but yeah it's a really range of it's uh, it's a nice age range in the in the participant group and we run these grid cell like uh, analyses this what we call the hexadirectional analysis because it's, it's um, six-fold rotation symmetric this hexadirectional analysis we ran on all of these people in a viewing task it's a movie watching so i think people watch uh, finding nemo uh, no despicable, despicable me of course finding nemo is yet a different data set sorry <laughs> Uh, this is a crucial uh, difference. Uh, exactly, the data. crucial difference. Yeah, <laughs> both great movies. Uh, exactly. So, Despicable Me, they watch uh, like a short snippet, and we see that this grid cell-like signal actually builds up in the course of development. So, it's um, we see that the amplitude of the signal—it's a bit complex—but the amplitude of the overall signal, the, this modulation in the fMRI signal, is more or less the same in all. But the distinct, well, basically. Um, where these signals peak or which directions have a high activity and which directions have a low activity, this is more stable in the old than in the young. So in the young, it's, it's as if these visual grid cells, if you want, or visual grid cell-like signals are not anchored to the screen as much as in the adults, even though the overall modulation of the signal is similar. It's just more stable in the adults. So we, we interpret it as the cognitive map being more anchored to external cues in the adults versus the children because it's more because it's relative to the movie it's these um, signal modulations become more stable so they are aligned to the screen if you want and Chris, uh, if i remember correctly in the rodent literature about the developmental stuff um as in like how the play cell grid cell border cells these things how they develop in rodents if i remember correctly the it seems like the rodents they kind of start out with proximity to border so the border cells are very strong and mm -hmm. then i can't remember like the exact order of them but it seems like basically you have like some sort of you look for external cues first um like distance to walls and that kind of thing and then as they get a bit older they they develop this map where they can move kind of free yet yeah, like kind of more independently of these landmarks yeah um, do you, can you look for that at all in or is it i don't know whether you can like look for example look for boundary vector cells or something like that or is that just not we don't have the analysis for that we discussed that a lot actually and we actually we even ran some boundary analyses but they were not really they didn't really show anything i mean one thing we did is just we tiled up the entire screen in different bins and just compared boundary bins versus center bins but you don't really see a difference between those two at least so far we don't see anything interesting popping up and it's always, I mean, in fMRI, it's always complicated to think about where, I think the beauty of, of this kind of research, or at least what, what brought me into this fMRI research, this specific question, for example, was um, 
that you have a very clear prediction taken from electrophysiology and you test it, you think about how would this translate to a population level signal, wow, then you have a prediction that you can now test in fMRI. And this nice taking a, an hypothesis from EFIS and testing it on population level in fMRI, that's yeah, was so what was so uh, attractive for me in a way in this project. That that's what I thought was really beautiful in these previous studies, also from Christian, for example. It was this beautiful single cell inspired finding um, that he put forward. And for boundary uh, vector cells or boundary cells or border cells, um, at least to me, it's not very clear how the population level prediction would look like. Maybe just co comparing boundary versus center pins is actually not the best thing to do. I think in these, uh, so in, in Beth Buffalo's data, at least they see that there's something like a visual border cell that does fire along the boundaries of the visual display, but not at boundaries within that display. So the, of course, the movie itself that they watch, for example, or the image itself might, might have some different edges and stuff inside the picture. And these cells do not fire at those edges at least what they in the data that we that I uh, I've seen these cells do not fire at these edges within the image but at the edge of the image and that that's what we looked for but we didn't see it yeah but maybe maybe our prediction is just wrong who knows yeah <laughs> but i mean but as you said like it, it is very it is a kind of a, a big step to go from single cell recordings in rodents to population based analyses in fMRI in humans i mean it's yeah. just it is i mean that it you know Crescendola was a nature paper, right? From being able to show that it's possible with grid cells, right? Like that by itself is a major achievement. You need to, of course, emphasize that also, I don't want to sound like I'm suggesting that fMRI measures grid cells. This is not what I'm saying. I'm just saying we took a prediction from EFIS literature and tested it on fMRI and it was confirmed. What the actual link is between these two worlds, I have no idea about. Right, there might be it. It might end up actually that none of the fMRI signal is explained by like grid cell spikes in, in itself, but maybe it's the inputs to grid cells that might actually be not perfectly correlated with the spiking of a grid cell. It might also be it's actually some uh, head direction cell signal that some somehow is modulated by six degrees. Um, there's some evidence also for. Um, also in our group, uh, Tobias Navarro-Schröder is analyzing LFP data, seeing, uh, and also in MEG and, and recording in other people's recordings data, you see this six-fold symmetry also in, in the LFP. And what really drives it, whether it's spiking activity of grid cells is still kind of unknown. We, we like to believe that, but that link is not fully closed, I would say. Yeah, and I, I don't don't I, interpret I my it's grid cells but yeah you're right of course i mean the it's it's hard at least i don't know any other explanation for these results what other th other stuff than grid cells would lead to a six-fold rotational symmetry i don't know so, and the prediction comes from grid cells and it was confirmed that's that's where we are at now but i guess the more important point isn't it also that like it's more about the computational mechanisms behind it rather than whether a single cell does it or networks of cells. I think to some extent, to me, that's maybe not even the most interesting thing, but that the thing that you can see like the same computational patterns is, I think, to me, more interesting anyway. 
Yeah, for me, it always, when I think about fMRI and my own data, I always think about, um, yeah, the especially for the computation, if you, if you want to discuss that level. I mean, fMRI is sensitive to synaptic processing, which usually reflects the inputs to the system and, of course, local processing, right? Just wherever you, wherever there is um, transmitter reuptake, you have a lot of metabolic activity somehow and... Um, you might find an fMRI signal or an input, a change in fMRI signal. Um, but does that really mean that there is a computation going on? If let's say if there are inputs coming into the system, let's let's assume there is a cell uh, somewhere downstream. There's a receiver cell, and it receives some synaptic inputs. But none of these inputs is enough to actually make that cell spike. Then you would still have potentially an fMRI signal increase. But in that in that receiver cell, potentially there's not a single spike. So would you call that a computation then? Or you could say, well, there's synaptic computations, but what are they good for if the receiver neuron is not spiking? So I always think about finding these results does not finding fMRI uh, effects does not necessarily mean that the computation is going on in that area where you find it in. At least, um, at least there is a chance that it that it might actually origin some somewhere else. Mm, that's a very good point. How do, how do you see that? <laughs> to be honest, I haven't really thought about fMRI that much in detail in a sense because, I mean, my... Yeah, most of my stuff has been in... I mean, the, the two master's projects I did do were with MEG and EEG. And only now I'm kind of... I mean, I've done behavioral stuff so far in since starting my PhD. Mm -hmm. Um. So this is kind of something that's still ahead of me. Something I'm, I guess, well, <laughs> I've been saying I'll start soon for like a year now. Um, but to be honest, I don't think I have a particularly qualified point on that. Like for example, the I don't exactly like the other thing is like the specifics of where the bold signal comes from. Mm -hmm. I'm not that I don't really know that much about it to be honest. Um, yeah, I'm not even sure how much is known about it. I mean. Uh yeah, I think there are plenty of studies on it, but there's there are still many unknowns, I would say. And of course, a spike, let's say spiking in uh, in a let's say the receiver neuron does spike, then the chance of neighboring synapses picking up that spike is also very high. So of course, let's say if there is activity in a region, let's say spiking, even output activity, the chance of this spike receiving neighboring neurons is also fairly high. So this intrinsic connectivity is usually very strong in many regions. So you might end up seeing it in the same, you might see the fMRI signal in the area where the spiking happens. All I'm saying is you cannot really make that causal link, I think, in the data. And just being aware of that, I think, is important. At least for me, I, I try to remind myself always. Yeah, yeah, right. I'm really glad you fact. did. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just a... So one question here, so you, I mean, you said you started off in vision itself, right? Or you studied biology even at the beginning, right? In your mm -hmm. diploma or bachelor's or whatever it was. Um, I'm curious, why, like, why do it, why do vision in humans if you can do it in animals and have, you know, much more precise knowledge about what you're actually measuring? Um, yeah, because, yeah. So like what, what made you interested in studying vision in humans specifically rather than um, doing it in animals? Well, ultimately for me, uh, most of the animal research is, I think it depends a bit on what your motivation is to do science at all. 
uh, for me, I at least I, I came into science also for personal reasons because I just wanted to know what this. Uh, I mean, it sounds a little bit, I don't know, dramatic, but I mean, I I came into uh, this business because I was curious. I wanted to know how this world works and how who I am and uh, how I perceive stuff. And studying biology, I, I simply thought, um, well, I could now study, I don't know, the some formation of trees or some uh, some specific animal or so. And then at the end of the day, I would go home and know a bit more about this tree, <laughs> how it works. <laughs> yeah. Would be amazing. I'm not saying this is not, n this is really important science and I, I, I love reading about this and so on. But I felt for me personally, it was not as satisfying as knowing about how I perceive all of those things. Let's say understanding how I perceive color made me f made me go home at the end of the day of university thinking, wow, I learned now something, how I see this tree, this animal, this car, basically how I interface with reality or what I what I can interface with at least. So it's more for me, at least it was more like a philosophical, I think, motivation to get into science. And it's basically a self-discovery in the beginning. And from that point of view, I just wanted to study vision in humans because ultimately that's who I am, <laughs> right? And uh, who all of us are. And it's also, I think, the closest, the methodology actually also I liked a lot. So I just I like the methods also. I like fMRI, I like neuroimaging, I like having whole brain resolution. A lot of questions you can simply ask only on network level. I mean, now, of course, with calcium imaging and neuropixel probes and so on, you can ask a lot of these questions also in animals. But when I started off a couple of years ago, of course, people did calcium imaging back then, but it was not the thing that it is now. It's It was still, you studied a little patch of cortex. And oftentimes you studied, let's say, fewer than 50 cells, let's say, <laughs> right? Yeah. In yeah. most of these recordings, um, or in a lot of them at least. Yeah, I just wanted to go for humans and um, have a bigger perspective on things, on, on, on the whole brain, how different areas interact. And I think this question that I'm in a way posing also is in my PhD was, how do you derive a stable representation of the environment from visual inputs that you cannot, uh, that entire question you cannot address by looking at V1 alone in isolation or hippocampus in isolation or retrospinal cortex in isolation. You need to understand the entire pathway. And that's for me, at least a convenient way of doing that is just a tool that allows you to give access to, that gives you access to all of these things simultaneously. Yeah, it's better to say, it sounds like you, I mean, that is exactly what you're doing, right? You're looking at how, let's say more, uh, more visual areas and hippocampus, for example, interact. I guess you said like in your, your PhD, you looked from so from V1 to hippocampus, and now you want to look at the other way, basically. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, yeah, I see how how it's a doing. network, right? The, for me, in my understanding, the the entire brain is a network. No single area evolved in isolation. Also, the function of an area can only be understood in the context of what all other areas are doing. It's not you cannot isolate hippocampus and understand what it is doing. You cannot cut off neocortex. Of course, you can learn a lot of a lot about the hippocampus doing that, right? You can, of course, understand its anatomy, intrinsic connectivity, maybe its cell types, all these sorts of stuff. But ultimately, all the areas are embedded in a network that that comprises all areas, and they are functioning only. The, they, 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 in my understanding, at least, they function the way they do 
because this entire network is there and yeah I, f I find this network level perspective um, is necessary and it's at least fMRI does give you access to that of course there's a lot of criticism about fMRI also because it's imprecise it's not clear what it actually measures uh, temporal resolution is often poor even though um, people like Nico Schuck for example put forward that actually the resolution might be much higher than people uh, thought so far temporal resolution but yeah it's it gives you this global perspective on the brain and it measures really everything that goes on in a voxel let's say there is a spike it will also trigger a lot of other spiking it will also trigger glia cells for example that reuptake the transmitters and all this sorts of stuff so it measures at least everything that goes on in that voxel not let's say these few percent of the metabolic demand that's associated with the actual spike so you in a way yeah get is that is that a good thing if you're measuring everything i mean doesn't that just if you're you know you're measuring stuff you're not interested in couldn't that just increase your uh, signal to noise decrease your signal to noise ratio i don't think it's really uh, it's good it's neither good nor bad i would say it's just important that you know about it right you just need to know what you're measuring it's not inherently bad or good to measure everything that goes on in a voxel and then of course there are all sorts of other problems multiple comparisons and all sorts of stuff which need to be addressed of course and are being addressed and this is really important um but from just from a yeah i would say from a you need to understand you need to be aware of what you're measuring that's just all what i'm saying and yeah. it's neither good or bad it's it's a signal that you get it tells you something about what the brain does yes it might not be individual spiking neurons uh, it's still for me very interesting <laughs> and i truly believe that it does measure indirectly neuronal activity i mean look at for example uh, retinal toppy in, in v1 for example i mean it's such an amazing strong signal that you get in, v in v1 how visual visuals uh, stimuli are represented in the brain you can actually draw letters into the cortex using different stimuli you can let's say if you present an m on the screen you will see that m reflected in on the cortical surface i mean how would that even be possible if it doesn't measure anything meaningful and i mean if let's say the fact that there are a lot of clear cells in there i'm not an expert on that really not but maybe it even helps you pick up the signal because it amplifies uh, the signal if you want because let's say there's one neuron spiking then a lot of cells would reuptake the transmitter and overall potentially boost the metabolic demand in that voxel so in a way it could actually for fmri be beneficial that there's a lot of stuff happening because it will amplify the neural signal of course it will add noise as well um but yeah, it's yeah, and like I yeah, I don't know much about glial cells either. Or I mean, I, I had one like small module on neuron glia interactions, and um, I mean, the, the the big picture message I remember from that is that you know, glial cells are involved in computations and all these kind of things. Mm -hmm. They really take up calcium or whatever. They release it um, at least in some situations. So. I mean, yeah, you would assume that that there's a decent chance it has something to do with the neuron activity also. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. I mean, may, it might not be in all of the cases, but in some. 
And I think there's beautiful evidence that it does so in some. And yeah, visual cortex. That's another thing actually in the beginning, because you, you asked me why I studied vision in humans, why not in animals? Um, just seeing retinotopy in humans and, and uh, something called population receptive field mapping uh, just blew my mind as, a, as an undergrad. Just seeing in your, in basically in your own data, in your own brain. I was also par a frequent participant in, in studies in, back in Tübingen where I studied, of course. Basically, that's how I, uh, how I finance my bachelor's <laughs> and my <laughs> master's, if you want. Of course, uh, my parents uh, supported me as well. But also, in addition, I got some, some money on the side for, from just participating in every single project there is. <laughs> and just seeing, basically, my own brain activity in these data as in response to these different tasks that I, that I was performing. Was, was that beautiful in, for me. in Andreas Bartels' group or was that in... In all sorts of groups, yeah. Group. But also in, in the group. As a, I was Back then, I was basically the pilot subject for <laughs> most of the studies. That's pretty good, going from <laughs> yeah. a participant to... <laughs> you did your master's project there or what was it? I did, yeah. My master's and then I worked as a research assistant in the lab as well for quite a while. So I'm, I, I'm not particularly familiar with the you know, biology curriculum. But I'm somewhat surprised that you'd have like fMRI retinotopic images in undergraduate biology. Was that like as part of a I don't know, vision module or how did, how did, how did you come across those first? Actually, I think in the actual uh, university studies, the only fMRI study we discussed was the dead salmon, which you might be aware of. <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not sure if everybody at the, at the biology department was a big fan of fMRI. <laughs> Um, yeah, but fMRI was not a popular topic overall, I think, I felt, at, at university. Uh, but I was always, I had friends uh, who studied psychology also, and we just got into contact with the Max Planck Institute there. Um, yeah, I think I actively reached out to human researchers who then were much closer to fMRI and this kind of thing. So in the actual studies, I think it gave me a, a good understanding of the neurophysiology and overall, the physiology um, is is what reeled me in, if you want, <laughs> right? Understanding how how stuff maps onto neurons and even how the kidney works. <laughs> so this kind of yeah, you understand how how you work, and by doing so, you understand. Or at least I feel I understand how I what I can even know about the world, <laughs> if you want. Do you think that's um, so? I'm always like one thing I always, or not always, but I occasionally think about is like what, um, or sometimes when like even some people ask me who maybe are doing a bachelor's project or something like that, or like in their bachelor's what they should do for their masters. So I'm always curious like what path, in a sense, people should take if they want to do, let's say, something like what you're doing. Um, so I'm curious, what do you? So was your your bachelor's was in biology, and then your master's. Also, or was that in, what was the topic there officially? Uh, neurobiology. Neurobiology. So I mean, again, like a very like cellular kind of course, or was that also? Um... Cellular and I would say behavioral also. So an amazing uh, prime, a course on, on primate biology and behavior with Andreas Nieder in Tübingen. That was amazing. Also, um, I remember I gave a talk on uh, vocalization behavior. Just basically, yeah, something like rudimentary 
like a rudimentary uh, language if you want um, yeah I would say it's mostly cellular and behavioral studies that we discussed uh, probably okay so I'm curious like what do you think is the advantage of having that background like is there is it something like you said earlier like you you know what you can that you're maybe more aware of maybe asking what you can find out with certain signals or um, what you can even know with these kind of things or what, what do you think is maybe the advantage of having studied biology versus uh, psychology mathematics physics computer science whatever yeah, yeah it's difficult it's a difficult question because i didn't study all these other things but for me uh everything my entire thinking is inspired by my knowledge about neurons and single cells and electrophysiology and just biology overall this is where i come from and at the end of the day i use fmri to study the brain and the brain doesn't compute in voxels right it, it, it also doesn't compute in signal to noise ratios or uh, it actually it might do but uh, not an fmri yeah, scale yeah. <laughs> um, at the end of the day what i'm interested in is is the biology right and and the cognition that it gives rise to and for that at least my thinking is uh, is, is based on my bio biological background and i wouldn't want to miss it also i would study biology again maybe with a maybe actually more physics as well i could just start over again like i would probably study like a combination of your or yeah, general physics so the two the kind of the two two uh, approaches to reality so basically studying how the world out there likely is and then also how i perceive it knowing about my own sensors, knowing about how I interface, knowing about how I build, how I acquire knowledge about the world. But in a way, these two things go hand in hand for me. You, if I, if I want to know what's there in, in out there, I kind of need to understand how I measure stuff, how my body is measuring stuff, how I work, how my brain works. And I feel at least, I mean, privately, I like to read about I don't know physics also astrophysics and so on i'm always mind blown about what they are able to show maybe i also don't understand it enough to know what's wrong with it <laughs> but uh, i mean if people i don't know if i read a if you re actually i do read some papers even sometimes on just some off-topic stuff uh, at least for my own research irrelevant stuff um, and if i read a paper about how different atmospheres are measured on distant planets and I feel like this is insane um, and I would love to at least in my in my studies uh, I would have loved to have more of that I think do you think that kind of stuff is I always wonder whether that stuff is easily teachable or you know like because then it's a module you have to take and then they tell you certain things whereas if it's kind of something you just explore on your own I feel like often that can uh, maybe not enhance the sense of wonder more, but um, I don't know. Maybe it depends on like what kind of student you also are. <laughs> um, mm. I, did, I, I, did, I didn't quite get that. What, what do you mean exactly? Well, um, so it sounded to me as if you uh, meant that it would be cool if in your bachelor's or master's you would have had maybe a module on 
Well, I'm not entirely sure what, like, was it just on like a, a different topic, like something that's like completely left field and has nothing to do with biology, or what exactly um, would you have liked to have had? Basically, a, f a full uh, full study in physics. Okay. In addition to a full study in biology, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I see. Okay. Actually, if you think of it, also knowing about the fMRI signal, you actually learn a lot about physics, <laughs> or you need to know a bit about physics. In a way, I feel the research I am doing and also you are doing um, is really at the interface of many of these disciplines, right? You we take you you take inspiration from maybe biology, from EFIS or so, um, but it only matters to you because you want to understand maybe the the cognition behind it or psycho basically from a psychological point of view what this means to you, <laughs> all this biology. But to do so, you need to know how how your um, how your how your measuring device works, if you want, what it measures. At least in fMRI, you need a decent understanding of physics if you want to do it right. If you develop your own sequences and so on, you are basically forced to dig into more of the details, uh, which is good, I think. You also need, a, from a statistical point of view, uh, need a lot of back uh, or a strong background. Basically, you need to understand all these tests that you're doing, all these data cleanup, signal processing. You need to understand programming so there's some computer science coming in as well um, yeah it's I, th I feel like it's not one or the other you need this bigger perspective and interdisciplinary um, yeah the, all these interactions and I was always lucky that I've been working um, with people from very diverse backgrounds for example uh, psychologists uh, my lab my, my office mate here Markus Frey who um, co-developed DeepMRI with me. He's a computer scientist by training. So machine learning and AI, basically, that's where he comes from. I'm a biologist using fMRI and eye tracking. And the two of us in the same room um, is amazing because you, we try to, or we, we address the same problems but from a completely different perspective, right? And the fact that we both have a a background in coding at least or some some programming skills at least gives us a language that we can talk in and i think we both have a decent understanding in of, of signal processing right all these basics how uh, i don't know how does a filter work what does what is convolution all of these things if you know about this stuff and a bit of statistics you can at least interface with these other disciplines a bit easier i feel at least for me this was the most fruitful or very fruitful interaction um with Marcus and with overall with computer scientists. And then psychologists, of course, um, there are a lot. Christian Döller, my, my PI, is a psychologist by training. Um, I had a, I supervised a master's student who actually pursued a physics study here in, in Trondheim. Also, again, basically coming from a different perspective. Yeah, so what many, was many. What was he doing with physics? Like, was it a MRI physics thing or? What was his yeah, point? he analyzed. We analyzed some data. Yeah, so data analysis project. So the 70, 70 data. But I think for him it was also interesting because in, at the end of the day, this, the the analysis part, the analytical part of the project, and identifying the problem, trying to solve it, um, writing code to solve it, interpreting the results, visualizing it, all this sorts of stuff is basically the same no matter what you do, what kind of field you are in. 
And as I said, I mean, fMRI is a physics-heavy field, if you want. Um, and for him, I think that gave him a natural entryway also. So he came from physics and wanted to know a bit more about the brain, but entered the field via this, how does fMRI work, kind of, this was his approach to the field, I think. And then he learned more and more about the brain as well. <laughs> and I went the other way, right? I, I came from, this is a cell, <laughs> um, the mitochondria are the powerhouse of the cell. It's <laughs> <laughs> so, a classic. It's uh, <laughs> a classic. Two, how does the scanner work? I don't know what statistics, <laughs> what is programming? Yeah. I'm curious about, like one thing I always find a bit difficult is because it's so interdisciplinary and you can go like, you know, it seems like a, like in any direction you want to go, there's just so much stuff you can look at. Like even if you want to, I mean, if, if you just do a very simple experiment with a very simple statistics, you know, just in the statistics, you can, you know, I mean, there's people doing PhDs in statistics, right? So I'm curious, how do you decide how much to look into a field, like how much you need to know for a field? Um, let's say for MRI physics, like there's a, you know, there's a point where you have to stop looking into how the physics of it works, otherwise you're doing physics. Um, so I'm curious, how do you kind of handle this? Um, well, at least what for me is quite difficult to figure out when I've like learned something at enough detail and when I should move on with my main stuff. Mm. Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, <clears throat> don't I don't think I have a very good answer for it I would think that when do you know when you know enough about some basically side side topic yeah I mean I, I think I might sometimes go uh, a bit too far on some things where you realize like okay reading one paper probably would have been enough <laughs> like you did need to go like two three citations into that paper like references into that paper mm -hmm. but, uh, i don't know whether it's just something you have to like learn by experience and see like okay i don't know the last few times i i learned lots of stuff that is just i just can't use in this or yeah but then i always find like sometimes you also maybe you know, you're missing out on some sort of serendipitous finding because you just don't understand the thing well enough. At the end of the day, I think it's probably a question of practicalities. You need to m move forward with your project. Right? At some point, you're just restricted by time, limited by time. In theory, I would love to know everything about everything. That's clearly not possible. Um, and I, I don't know, I don't, I don't think I, I, I don't feel I lose myself too much in some side topics. Maybe I do, but I don't experience it that way. Uh, at some point it just becomes too detailed for me, or I think this is not relevant for my own work. I think you, you might, I think one good advice could be to um, think about how this actually informs what you are doing in your own work. And if you feel like this is actually, or, pr or maybe some, or how it speaks to some private interest of yours. But at some point you'll notice, well, this is actually, if you ask yourself what I'm just reading, does this get me anywhere in my private search for knowledge or in my work? And if the answer is not really, <laughs> then you might have gone too, too far down the rabbit hole. 
Yeah. Yeah. So I like like one example that I'm curious, like how much, um, for example, I think this is a question that many people, especially those who come from psychology, ask themselves, like how much math do you need to know? Um, I think, well, I think knowing none is probably not a good idea. <laughs> and doing an entire maths degree is maybe a bit much, but like, uh, so how, how have you, I don't know, did you have any in your undergraduate post, like bachelor's master's or did you have to like learn all of that yourself or how did you go about that? Yeah, so I had some in, of course, in, in bachelor's and master's, uh, that was also very useful. Um, I wouldn't call myself like a math expert or so. Um, I think I know the stuff for me, at least, I think it's again, a practicality issue. Um, I don't really like copying code from other people. So I try to implement it myself. Usually I, sometimes I get a script from somebody, but I would never use it. <laughs> I would actually then look at how it works and then implement my own script based on it. And to implement it yourself, you kind of need to dig into the math, but then you're already uh, limited to what is relevant to you. You mean because you have like an outline of what the other person did? Or? I mean, you have a, you have an ob objective and you kind of search for the math that get you there for the math that get you there. And uh, I don't know. I mean, overall, I feel like I could, I could, I would love to have a much better or more solid understanding of math um, than I than I do. But I feel like I do have enough to pursue my work. And in the end, at, at the end of the day, a lot of the stuff that you would learn, let's say, in a, in a math pursuing a math degree, um, is not directly relevant to your practical work as a biologist it can inform it i think if you have a solid background in math it's amazing um your your basically your starting position is a completely different one um but it's not absolutely necessary and you will develop the skills that you need to pursue your work along the way if you're dedicated and the, at the end of the day it's all a question of dedication for me or maybe if you want to bring in this word commitment for me it's all about <laughs> commitment um you need to be committed to what you're doing. And if you are committed to neuroscience, then you're automatically committed to learning the skills you need. And that includes math, some basic knowledge of physics, some psychology, biology. You need, to, yeah, I think this is the way forward for, for us as a overall, as a discipline, maybe that's a big, big question now, but it's overall as, as a discipline, uh, it's, it's the way forward is to grow in all of these directions and have people that at the interface of these disciplines and make them talk. <laughs> Do you <laughs> see yourself then as like a person at the interface, like someone connecting people from other areas or um, someone who is like very heavily based on, um, you know, very heavily based on biology and fMRI, whatever. And then you're kind of, do you see where I'm trying to get at? Like, I feel like mm -hmm. there's some people who are maybe really good at communicating with lots of different kinds of people and bringing them together and others maybe who are the other kinds of people who then say, okay, well, let's say, for example, you uh, come from a biology background and you say, okay, I just want to, now I'm collaborating with, um, what's the same, Markus Frey, um, mm -hmm. a computer scientist. Is, is that kind of how you see you, your role in this or? I mean, it might go too far. I don't know. Um, 
I'm just a guy like everybody else and um, I'm doing what I love. I think I, I do bring people together, but I am also brought to other people by other people. Uh, it's an interaction. I wouldn't, I don't know. Definitely, I do bring people together and I'm really grateful for a lot of people in my uh, surroundings, in my environment that that connect me to other people. Uh, so I guess the quick, the, the easy answer is yes, but so are a lot of other people. And I think this is, this is again, this is a network issue. It's like the brain, right? Every, everybody co-evolved in, in a big, gigantic network. And uh, yeah, everybody is a connector if you want. I have, uh, if I can change topic a bit, I have one yeah. question that I'm curious about, and this is a very dumb topic almost, but it's the use of Twitter. Because I think over the last, I don't know, since whenever it was started, I think over the last five, six years or something, I've occasionally started a Twitter account and then never knew what to do with it and then basically deleted it. And like three years later, I was like, I should maybe try and do Twitter again. And it seems to me as if you are doing, you're quite, I mean, it's not like you're tweeting all the time, um, but it seems to me you, I mean, you have quite a few followers for, for a scientist on Twitter, right? Um, if I remember correctly. And I, I find like you looking at your tweets is pretty informative. Um, so <laughs> Thank <I'm curious>. you. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curious, like, how are you, like, how do you, like, what do you put on there? How do you decide what to put on there, what not to put on there? Um, I mean, I, I try to limit it to science. I, I don't really engage with political discussions on Facebook, uh, on uh, Twitter or Facebook. Um, I'm not active on Facebook at all, actually. But on Twitter, I am active indeed. No politics. Um, I stay. I try to stay to um, with science and evidence and papers. Um, it's. I think it's important to do science communication, which is uh, uh, one of the reasons I'm doing that. The other one is just I love to share stuff that I like. Uh, that's that goes for science, but that also goes for music. I don't post music on Twitter, but I do spam my my friends all the time with. Like, look at this uh, YouTube video. This is amazing. This is a, this is a great song. So I would also send these recommendations to people <laughs> that do not ask for it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks Twitter. for that, Matthias. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thanks for that song. But I mean, on Twitter, at least the people who follow you, yeah, I mean, they yeah. could always unfollow you, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, uh, these are the two reasons I think science communication is important and I love sharing stuff that I love. So it's like two fellow scientists and... Is it also then like for the general, I mean, whoever the general audience is, um, like you said, science communication? Yeah, so I did, I did, for example, for Real Scientist, that's also a Twitter account, uh, website. So what is uh, what that do does, they do? Yeah, so they share, so that's, um, you can, different people host that, uh, that Twitter account for, let's say, a week, and then they tweet about their work, um, daily, daily stuff, how the work is actually, how the, uh, kind of about the practicalities of the work. This is my desk. This is my, oh, sorry, like literally this your is my work. lunch room. I see, I see. Exactly. Okay. But then also so your workplace, but also about your science or that actually might be anything. Um, could be, there could be people that, um, work in industry, for example, or do academic research. So it's, it's a, it's a broad scope. I was one of them, one of the hosts speaking to the German public about science and tried to explain to them what grid cells are and, and 
um, play cells and memory formation, episodic memories, all these sorts of stuff. Uh, and I enjoyed, enjoyed that a lot. It's also a lot of work, of course. If you want to do that properly, it's a, it's a lot of work. And also finding the good a good German phrasing of all these uh, papers is some is is specifically also a lot of work in, in a way. It characters. always feels a bit in in very few characters indeed. Yeah, I mean you can make these threads, so I just right, made yeah, threads. Okay, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. And then actually most of the time I spent searching for figures that I would be able to use because of course you can't use licensed figures from the actual papers. You can't just tweet them o on really? Twitter. I don't, I don't think so. Okay. I think I you need a license it for time, it. Though, right? Was it yeah, just I'm people not sure with that. Um, I'm not hundred percent sure if that even is allowed, but I will at least. I'm also not saying it's it, it's not allowed, but I didn't feel comfortable sharing anything that I don't have a license for. So actually, I ended up just I ended up just searching images that I would be able to use that that the general audience would understand, that that I could show my also my I don't know my parents who do not have a neuroscience degree, and they would be able to understand. And I think that's again that's important in the end. In, in the end, this is where all this tax money is coming from this is uh, the society that we that we as a scientists as a scientist also serve in a way you um, overall for a society to have basic research is great and um, at least to some degree also luxurious right to be able to afford this kind of science if you are if you um, are a society that has a lot of problems you end up cutting often these societies cut the science funding um, sadly uh, because the money is just needed elsewhere more immediately whereas basic science is often often a long-term project that you need additional money for and to explain why you need that and why it's important and why your research is important and why overall science should be funded and why science also basic science is critical this depends on the acceptance and the motivation of the of society as a whole um yeah chipping in and, and funding all of this stuff so i feel yeah this is important yeah i mean to me that's like i mean i think there's a few reasons why i want to do this podcast but one of them is also that just you know there's a lot of people who seem to be interested in these kind of topics and who um you know just have a completely different life and don't have the time to you know, spend hours reading papers or whatever um and i think yeah most stuff i think can be communicated fairly easily if you try um at least uh, i think especially from psychology because most of the stuff you study is to some extent about stuff people talk about anyway um i know like hexadirectional symmetry is a bit harder to explain <laughs> using just words mm. but um yeah, the, the funny thing about that signal is if you see it, it's very clear. And if you see a grid cell firing rate map, it's the most obvious. You know what thing. it is. Yeah, yeah. It's very obvious. But uh, yeah, putting it in words can be overly complicated. <laughs> yeah. And also, I mean, you probably noticed in that po in this podcast as well. Podcast as well is that I didn't find the best phrasing yet <laughs> <laughs> yeah. for grid cells, the most concise one. It's always like, oh, this is how it. But yeah, yeah. I think I don't know. Yeah, I also wondered like how to, yeah, I mean, maybe I think like one way might be to like link it to stuff that people know, right? Let's say like a honeycomb is a hexagonal pattern. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know how clearly people know that. Uh, like, um, yeah, 
Yeah, it is, it is a weird thing where I feel like if you just say, like, just look at this photo, like, then people will know. Um, there must be, like, some good real-life examples where you can just say, like, it's like that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, they are, of course, yeah. Yeah. So maybe I can ask you a question. You already um, you already men mentioned it a little bit, but so the motivation for you to to establish this podcast. By the way, I find this amazing that you do that. Is that you mentioned um, before this before this recording? You also mentioned that this was a long term dream or ambition of yours. Yeah, I've been thinking about it for to a while. To start this, I mean, right? yeah. Are you? Yeah. So basically, so I. What is, I mean, I think I just always, I mean, one of the things is I just always like listening to podcasts. So I've been, I don't know, for five years or something. And I think, I think that's at least when I became aware of podcasts. And I think before then, you know, I listened to whatever, like long form interviews on TV or whatever, whenever the, they were available. Um, and I don't know, I just always enjoyed listening to usually two people talk. I think in general, I'm not someone who's a huge fan of groups. I, I like like a dialogue or like two or three people at most. And so I think I've just always enjoyed listening to people talk about something that they and I find interesting. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so I, I think, I don't know. I think in general, when I see someone do something that's cool, I just want to do it also, which is, I think, a very natural <laughs> habit. I think I have it maybe more than others. And it <laughs> leads to me starting like various different projects. Um, which can be a bit overwhelming sometimes, but um, yeah. So then I think for the last four or five years, I've been like vaguely thinking about doing something like this, but never really had the, um, I mean, one thing is I think four or five years ago, I don't know how good the technology was to do this kind of stuff. I mean, you could like, you can use Skype and that kind of stuff, but I always felt like the audio quality there just wasn't that good. Um, maybe it was, I don't know. It seemed to me like that. And then, I mean, also I felt like I didn't quite have enough stability in sense of like knowing what I wanted to do. Um, and like, you know, like when you're doing your masters or whatever and you move, I mean, I've been pretty much moving around like between cities almost every year for the last 10 years. Um, well, not exactly. I had like three years of bachelor's, but apart from that, it's been like a new city every year. Um, and, but I feel like now I have a bit more stability in the sense that You know, I know like I have a, I have like an income for a few years, but I know like I can afford the software or something and the hosting. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, I thought I'd just try it. I mean, another thing was also so. I mean, as I said, one thing I think is um, it's like science. I mean, I'm not like into science communication per se, but um, I you know I do enjoy like popular science books about topics I know nothing about. Um, but another thing is also just that, you know, it happens to me so often or to everyone probably that you, who's a scientist, you read a paper, you think something's really cool and you have a few questions about it. And then usually you just kind of have those questions and you try and answer them yourself or you maybe ask someone who um, might know something about it. Uh, but I feel like in most cases, you, you know, you don't just go up to the author and ask them. At least I don't. Um, unless you happen to know them or something. Um, so part of the hope is, I mean, yeah, part of the hope is that I can just 
talk to people whose stuff I find cool <laughs> and like ask them about it, right? It's just, you know, like, for, I mean, another thing is maybe, so we have these talks in Hamburg and um, like, first of all, you know about it because you, you were one of the speakers. Um, and then people, you know, they usually come from somewhere else to Hamburg, then they stay like a day or two or something, I don't know. And then they give a talk at like well, some point in the day and then they usually have like, um, they'll send like an email around saying like hey this person's coming does anyone want to talk to them and like um and that's cool and i've done that before but it's always so limiting because you usually have like someone who's like spoken about the same things with like four people before you or something for the last few hours they may be a bit tired or jet lagged or whatever and then um it's just not the most efficient way of doing that so my hope is just i'll just contact the people i want to talk to <laughs> Um, just learn something about their work and also how they approach stuff. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, and I, if I understand you correctly, you also don't only invite scientists, right? It could be any anybody. Yeah, I mean, it's that you think has something interesting to tell. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm just interested in like loads of stuff, um, and I mean. Yeah, so I, there's just, I mean, I, I read lots of books. I, you know, enjoy film, music, art, whatever, sports. And um, so there's just, the hope is that, that I can also talk to those people about whatever they do. Right now, um, I mean, like one reason why a lot of my guests will be neuroscientists and psychologists and whatever is because I know a few of them. For example, it was, you know, much easier to ask you because we've met before. Um, than to just like randomly mail someone who you know has no idea who I am and these kind of things so I know a few people in science and um, I think it's also easier for me to establish connections there because I can say like hey I read these three papers of yours and I can really show like I know their stuff um, so I think most guests probably will be from that at least in the beginning um, but yeah the hope is I mean I have like a few guests already or a few people who said like they were going to come on who are um, not scientists. Um, Maybe eventually you could invite somebody who is running a podcast <laughs> and discuss basically <laughs> setting up a podcast. Yeah, I've already. There's I no think for people like yourself, people who are planning a podcast, that actually might be very interesting. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, these meta things always, I've always find them slightly annoying. <laughs> like <laughs> okay. A, like a, uh, I mean, like it, it, it could be fine, but like, you know, like you read a book about someone who's writing a book where the, person in the book you know it's like okay you're very clever but um <laughs> but but in this kind of non-fiction sense i uh, i agree and there, there is already one guy who oh, i'll not mention the name now just because he might say no and um but there, there is one guy who i'm gonna ask because he's doing a somewhat similar podcast um yeah because it's i mean yeah just to, just to see what his experience was like so far It's, yeah, it would be fun. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is a bit work putting up the podcast and that kind of stuff, but it's my, my hope at least is that it's not like a huge amount of work. We'll see. <laughs> I mean, like right now I do read like, you know, I like I read your nature neuroscience paper, your text paper for this. Um, so that, you know, that does require some effort. Um, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And it makes sense to invite on people that you actually want to, read the stuff yeah or you often i just have right like in your case i hadn't read the papers before but i saw your talk so um, mm -hmm. yeah 
Do, do you want to start your own podcast? Uh, no, no intentions <laughs> here at, at this point. No, <laughs> no time actually. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see how the time thing works out. Um, yeah, I'm just starting it. We'll see. <laughs> I hope I don't like, dig myself into a hole here. Yeah, I'm not going to get out of. <laughs> okay, so I mean, you mentioned earlier your is the plan then that you stay in Trondheim until the end of the year now, or because, maybe maybe can you explain like you wanted to go to the US, like you finished your PhD, you wanted to start a postdoc in the US in March or whenever it was. So when did you want to go there first? Uh, yeah, so in March was the initial plan that was postponed to May, then this was postponed to June, uh, sorry, July, and now it was postponed to. I don't know, no, November, who knows, um, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, of course, it's it's really complicated making any plans at the moment. But yeah, so my initial plan was to start a postdoc at the NIH with Chris Baker, who's an expert on scene um, or uh, yeah, on high level visual cortex as a, as a whole, but I'm very interested in working with him for his work with uh, on, on scene processing, because I think it really connects these low level visual areas to these hippocampal cortices that I'm interested in. So this is the interface, if you want, between the two worlds. Also between my work with Andreas Bartels and my work with Christian Doller, I feel like Chris Baker is right in the middle, bridging all of those levels in a way, bringing those together. Um, yeah, and the plan was to start in, in, in March initially. Now it's, now it's almost August. So that's a bit frustrating, of course, but the plan still is to move there. And I'm I'm really looking forward to that as well. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you're, in a sense, lucky that, you know, that Christian can support you for a bit longer, that kind of stuff. Because I feel like there must be a lot of people who are in a similar situation to you right now and who aren't in that position. And then absolutely, yeah. No, I'm know. I'm also deeply deeply grateful for that. Absolutely, yeah. And I mean, Chris, Christian and I, we we also have quite a few projects that I would have worked on anyway, or even after starting at the NIH. So now I just have some more time to actually get those further and and maybe even fi finish some of those. Uh, and that's great in a way, right? So I make, I think I feel, I feel like I'm making good use of that time now, but it was just not how I initially planned it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this entire world, I mean, entire 2020 for everybody, for all of us was a mess and confusing if you want. And uh, it was also for me. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. You, you're one of everyone. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the, yeah, I think the difference a little bit is that I still don't know how it's when things are moving forward. I mean, yeah, who I, knows? Think, I mean, you mentioned that in Hamburg, things bec become a bit more normal now. And also here in Trondheim, things are back to normal. In fact, we already scanned here in Trondheim again. Oh, yeah, we've been scanning for oh, yeah. okay. a month or two or something. I can't remember. I mean, basically, okay. I don't know exactly what the trajectory is, but I think for the last two, three weeks now, Hamburg has on any given day, well, on a, on a seven week average, I think they had like five, six, seven cases or something in Hamburg for the last three weeks. And, you know, Hamburg has two million people, so it's it's very limited right now in terms of the number of infections. Mm-hmm. I don't know, it, it always seems to be like a bit of an ebb and flow right now where you have like individual outbreaks in Germany. Um, but right now, well, I think, I guess general, the northern part of Germany seems to be pretty, like Mecklenburg-Vorpommern didn't have a single case, I think for like two weeks or something. Mm -hmm. 
but yeah but who knows how i mean i guess you, you they like they're gradually opening stuff again um and then kind of see how that affects transmission rates um but yeah so far it's I don't know whether everything... I think pretty much everything is open now in Hamburg. Yeah, here in Trondheim too. I think things are almost back to normal. But then I'm o I always feel like I'm just waiting for something. I'm waiting to leave. And yeah, this is... It's a bit taxing, I must say. And always the short-term... Uh, this short-term postponing is taxing. Like short-term, we're talking like, what, like two weeks before? It's like, nope, you're not coming? Or is it sometimes been... A I mean, I always... I mean, I, I still don't have the visa and the embassy is still closed and there's no information from the embassy when they will reopen. <laughs> and uh, they don't know. So I always end up waiting as long as I can before making any new decisions and new arrangements. But that also always means that really on short notice, we just um, change the entire plan. And it's not it's it's not a t it's not a small plan, right? It's 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 moving to the U.S. It's moving our entire lives to the U.S. And I've 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 been planning this for so long now that uh, yeah, it's it's about time to actually do it. <laughs> so like <laughs> us means you and your wife. Or? Yeah, exactly. So yeah. what does what is her situation like? Does she like work-wise or something? Does she have? I don't know. Does she have something there that she's going to do them there or? It's the same thing as you, or how does that work? Yeah, luckily she's she's working here at the the hospital, uh, and uh, so in the in the medical genetics department, as a as a tech uh, how you say it's a in Norwegian we call it bioengineer. Okay, so, yeah, uh, like an engineer or you it's know. A, um, yeah lab lab tech yeah. if you want. Um, running all these analyses that can also be used for uh, COVID nineteen. Um, yeah, diagnosis. So she doesn't have a, a job right now in the U.S. or yet, but uh, I mean the chances of her finding something are, I think, fairly high because of her background and yeah, the immediate application of of basically her somewhere in the hospital there. And I, I, I mean, I will be working at the NIH. <laughs> Sounds like that. Yes, so job. exactly. It feels like we already know quite a few people who um, might be interested. In high yeah. recruiting oh, her good. as well. Yeah. yeah. And okay, so assuming you get there at some point, <laughs> whenever that might be, do you already have like specific experiments you already you know you're gonna do, um, or is it still very much like I don't know? You discussed a general direction with Chris Baker, and then you'll see. Yeah, you'll figure out the details when you get there. Or... No, I think the experiments are are laid out. So I have plenty of ideas and, and discuss them with Chris also, I mean, identified the ones that that overlap with his interests most. And yeah, so these projects are, I think, some of the scripts are already done even, like uh, okay, so Jumalai really and stuff. Ready and to go. Also, the, also the lab, of course, already has a really uh, a good foundation in, in, in scripts and a good collection of, of, of retinotopic mapping stimuli and analysis, package, uh, analysis packages and so on. And also, my I, I myself have quite a few stimuli that I wrote and and and, and never used, and basically just adapted already a, a quite a few scripts. And conceptually, these projects I think are laid out nicely already. 
so it's kind just, of like a... just waiting to actually do it <laughs> but you can't do the way you are now or like i don't know like you have some sort of you say well i guess you say you're already starting other projects now with christian um, but let's say i don't know there's a second wave in the us in autumn and then mm -hmm. it's like you can't come in or you don't want to go in i don't know um for like another half a year or whatever um is um is it like could you just run the same stuff in Trondheim and it's a collaboration with Christian Dela's group then or yeah so this is this is one of the plans for uh for that project I mentioned that I'm starting with Christian it's actually a project that, I, that we've been planning for also for quite a while but then I didn't I, I thought I wouldn't have time before the US before before our move to run it here in Trondheim uh, and now um, I might scan it at the NIH and it will be a collaboration with um, Chris and Christian. And yeah, I mean, who knows if let's say the US remains closed for the next year or so, then yeah, I might end up scanning it here or, or maybe also in Leipzig. I mean, Christian is the next bank Leipzig. 